Hi, everybody. Good to see you. If you're new here, my name's Joel. Uh, we're in the, the Gospel of Matthew, and we're in Matthew chapter 26. We're getting to the last evening Jesus has with his disciples before the crucifixion. This gives us an opportunity to see, to see what people are like, <laughs> to see what the disciples were like, and to reflect a little bit on what we're like. And it's all done in the context of the, the, the meal that they share, the bread, the wine, and there's so much there for us, including how we celebrate communion at Emmanuel most weeks. So it's worth us investigating this because we can learn a little bit as well about the, the help that we can find in doing communion as a church. Let's have the reading now and let's uh, look at what it says to us afterwards. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the 12. And as they were eating, he said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Maybe you've seen one of those uh, football matches where the, the team performs sensationally to the point where you wonder what happened in the changing room. Perhaps it's especially marked when the first half and the second half are like two different teams. They, they maybe let a few goals in in the first half, second half, come out, fight back, equalise, win the game. Nearly always, from the commentator's box, back in the time when we had commentators, uh, you get the, the, the phrase... What did the coach say in the changing room? What, how, did he, how did he turn around? What did he say to them? Because we, we, we imagine, quite rightly, and it's usually true, there are stories that players tell of how a certain manager has a particular gift 
of inspiring and motivating high performance from the players. Jesus here is the coach, if you like. He's the master with the players, with the disciples, with these 12, not 11, but you know, if you include a substitute, it's a sort of parallel situation. This is the match the season has built up to. This is the crisis point they've been moving towards in Matthew's storytelling. And, and it's been a story that's in, in, included from the very beginning, clear reference to the crisis point that's coming. They have been told repeatedly that Jesus is going to the cross. They've been told this by Jesus himself. In different parts of Matthew's gospel, he makes this point to them. I'm going to Jerusalem. I will be arrested. I will be handed over to the Romans. I will be crucified. Apart from that, even further back, the cross cast a shadow over even his initial recruitment of these disciples. Jesus spoke to them saying, if you would be my disciple, you must first deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross in, in first century Galilee didn't mean put up with a difficult boss or you know, put up with a migraine. It meant literally, well, they would have seen crosses on the horizon from time to time, these men. The cross was a thing. It, they, they, they understood the point he was making. That you guys, I'm going towards execution. If you come with, you are as well. So laced into the relationship from the start, from the very beginning of this disciple and master relationship, was the, the prospect of crucifixion. So he has been saying from the beginning of the season, so to speak, the kind of match that they're building up to. So surely you would expect at this point of all points, he would be appealing to these guys to be on their A game. They are his guys. All the season has been building up to this. We've come a long way, guys. We got through the first round, the second round. We got through each. We got through the quarters, the semi. And here we are at Wembley. It's the moment. Now, I want to look you all in the eye. And I expect 90 minutes plus of absolute commitment from each and one of you. 110%. You kind of know that, that this is the moment. Surely... So, is it not absolutely staggering to note and worth considering the fact that he does, in fact, the precise opposite here? Jesus, in fact, rather than appealing to them, rather than trying to create an atmosphere of positive thinking, trying to stir them to high achievement and success, Rather, what he says to them is, well, let me put it in its most striking terms there in verse 31. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. You will all fall away. You will all fail, in other words. Jesus has nothing positive to say about their prospect, their performance over the next few hours. This next 24 hours, guys, are going to be your worst. You guys are going to totally fail. What is he doing? What, what, what is going on? How on earth could he be so bleak? What, what has this whole season been about, if that's the case? 
And it really is a, a very blanket evaluation. He's, he's speaking about them all. We understand that he might be referring to Judas. But even, have you noticed, the way he talks to Judas and talks about Judas earlier on in the story is kind of a little bit vaguer almost in Matthew's account here. It emphasizes the fact that all the disciples felt sad and all began to say to him, one after another, Is it me, Lord? Jesus is... is allowing an atmosphere of each one evaluating themselves with a sense of sorrow. They're not all saying, well, we know, we know who's going to bust. We know who's going to betray you. It was always Judas. He was always nicking stuff. And he's, he's that kind of guy. We know about Judas. Of course, yeah, we, yeah, we saw that coming. No, no, no. Instead, each one is, is having to introspect and having to overly, over again, evaluate. Is it me? Is it me, Lord? Is it me, Lord? What? Yeah, and each one of you will fail because of me. And Peter, with a little bit of pushback, <laughs> even if the others fail, I won't fail. Even if I have to die for you, I'll stay with you. And actually, Matthew points out that they all said the same. Peter's the one that gets quoted, but he's only speaking for them all. He's the figurehead, but he represents them. <coughs> they all protest their commitment. They're all com uh, sure, convinced that they were made for this hour. I, I'm ready for this. I could do this. Jesus is saying, you guys, 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 just stop it. Stop, guys, guys. You can't. You won't. You won't. This, this cuts across maybe some of our expectations of responsible and encouraging positive thinking training. Many of you are managers and bosses in your place of work or even parents, school teachers. You understand the reality that positive thinking does play a part. Confidence in a situation, that's, that's not pretend. That is a genuine factor. And there's lots of wisdom to be gleaned from leadership and management experts who teach about this psychologically. That The place that confidence plays it's not, it's not completely made up, that kind of training. There's some wisdom in it, to be sure, and important wisdom. But we're talking about something else, perhaps, here. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is trying to help us to understand. Yes, us. Yes, us here in, in 2023. Jesus is helping us, all of us, centuries later and beyond, to keep understanding, to, to know more truly and surely, by the, the testimony of this story, the testimony of history, the reality of the true, ultimate, and at the crisis point, most significant performance of the human race at its best. And I say at its best because remember, these are the 12. These are the chosen. These are the Premier League of Jesus followers. They represent us more fairly than we might deserve. These are the best and yet the best at the point of crisis scattered. The best at the point of testing. When the shepherd was struck, they fled. They all fell away because of him. The Bible is teaching us. Jesus is teaching us. Jesus is rubbing our face in something that we rather wouldn't have our faces he needs to he needs to persist until we come to the point of understanding the bible's evaluation of the human condition is not the same as our 21st century self-confident one 
as, as that which we perhaps are used to. For various reasons, we, we perhaps even bring it into the church. And churches become places where which we kind of trade in the same superficial, shallow sentiment of, of, of self-confidence and boosting one another's confidence and, and trying to get through life by simply telling each other how great we all are and how well we're going to perform in every situation, which of course is ultimately feeble against the real enemies that need to be faced. The ultimate enemies that we have to face, we can't overcome them with another motivational speech. Jesus is inviting us into a far more serious challenge, a far more serious test and conflict and battle than we might have even considered. And it's, it's therefore necessary for us to get to a point of understanding the Bible's ultimately pessimistic evaluation of the human heart. And it is. It is. It has to be. You, you, we, I, I sometimes will have to deal with, with that question as it comes to me. Over the years, occasionally, people will make the comment, your, your preaching is very negative. And I, I understand if, if people think that there's something, something in, in my style or personality. I, I, that's, we can talk about that and I can learn to adjust. But I can't adjust the, the message of this book. The, the point of this is, is clear as anything, clear as day, that we've fallen, we've failed, and that's where we start. Let me, let me help you consider it even further. Jesus is, is actually, strangely for us in this story, Jesus seems content with the situation. Have you noticed his calmness? Jesus is saying, what would sound like drastic things that would surely cause any leader to panic beyond measure. If, if I was having to say to my closest disciples, you will all fail tonight, of all nights, you will fail. I would be carrying that with, as grief. It would cause me deepest, deepest anguish in itself. But Jesus in this, in saying this, is somehow calm. In fact, he seems to be peaceful. In some respects, he almost seems to be happy. It says they sang a hymn together. He gave thanks for the wine. He blessed the bread. Jesus is, is secure. He's steady. He's contented. And he goes to execution knowing that these men will fail, but somehow it, it's, it seems okay with him. And there is an assurance in the text there <coughs> where he says, I will come to you in Galilee. I'll find you. I think it's worth considering the clue of actually what's being celebrated. Let me help you with this. It's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. Where the Jews, to celebrate the Passover, which is the story of how they were rescued from slavery in Egypt by God sending the angel of death to each house in Egypt, and where the angel of death saw blood on the lintel of each doorway, the angel would pass over that house and not bring death to the firstborn of each house, of those houses. Where there was blood on the doorposts, where there was blood on the doorposts, the angel would pass over. And it was called the Passover. But as, a, as an aspect, as well as the slaughtering of the lamb, as well as the the blood being placed on the doorway. There was also the making of bread 
And it had to be bread without leaven. It was bread from new dough. God insisted on it. And God insisted that from that point onwards, when this was annually celebrated amongst them as a people, they would have to take out all of the old dough and throw it away. Each house, on pain of separation from God's people, had to be completely cleansed of old dough. Everybody, for the, for the, for the week of the Feast of Unleavened, which is why in here it's called the first of unleavened, the first day of the feast. This whole feast, this festival of a few days, featured complete cleansing from existing dough. They didn't have supermarket yeast. They didn't bake in the way we did. Leaven was, was collected from a, the, the previous loaf. And it effectively is like a daisy chain of, of bread through the year. You take some of the, the dough from the previous loaf and, and bake it into the next loaf. And that was the way of leavening and, and having the yeast effect. But like I say, at the Passover, it was a cleansing. Throw it away. Cast it away. No more of that dough. We start the year again. God was speaking to his people. You're coming out of Egypt. Cast out. All that's come before. Cleanse, cleanse, be cleansed of what's been previous. This is a time of unleavened bread. This is a time of a new loaf, a new bread. And all that's gone before needs to be gone. Now Jesus at various points in, in the book of Matthew speaks about bread. Once or twice he appeals to his disciples to refuse the leaven of the Pharisees. For example, the, the teachers of Israel, the Bible teachers of Israel at the time the religious leaders, the, the apparent experts in Scripture, Jesus said to his disciples, do not receive. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, is the way he said it. Don't receive that into your life. Be cleansed from that. Be cleansed. I don't want you to listen to them. And in other places, he speaks about his kingdom as like leaven, that leavens a new loaf and grows it. Later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he speaks about uh, keeping out old dough. When the church in Corinth is becoming a little bit infected, a little bit corrupt, uh, through different kinds of compromise and swapping of values with the city around them. They, they, they get into immorality. They get into kind of wretched patterns of behavior and habits. And he says, cleanse it out. Get rid of this leaven. Is the way he describes it. Celebrate the Passover properly, he's saying. He uses the image. The point is that Jesus seems in this story to have chosen the moment. God, through the, the orchestrating of these events, which of course he sovereignly controls over, over all things, including the celebration of Passover in Jerusalem. He's, he's orchestrating all the details, all the dates in his phenomenal wisdom so that these things align on the first day of unleavened bread. Jesus' disciples are being cleansed. There's old dough amongst them. It needs removing. It needs cleansing. Jesus is starting something new. He's starting a new loaf, if you like. He's building a new body, a new people, a new community coming out of old slavery, old Egypt. I'm come to rescue you from your previous lives, rescue you from your compromise, rescue you from that which would betray me. And we might think, well, Judas is the bad leaven, right? Judas is, is yeah, yeah, of course it's Judas. But that's not the point. Jesus said, all of you will fail me. The whole 12 is being sifted. All the disciples are being treated to an unleavening. 
They're being cleansed of something. And we might think, what is it they're being cleansed of? It would seem, looking at the kind of climactic point of this whole story, there at the end of verse 35, all the disciples said, I will not deny you. All of them, I will not deny you. All of them were wrong. All of them. Perhaps it's that. (laughs) It would seem reasonable to imagine that there was what we might call a fleshly self-confidence. The word flesh is sometimes used in the Bible about our, our strength without God. Our, our outward performance in order, it's set up in some way to, to prove ourselves, to, to build on our own strength, to build on our own performance, our own attainments, and perhaps even to impress God, to move God by, by how well we do. And Jesus is saying, enough, I don't want any of that. I'm purging the whole load. I want it out, cleansed, out, gone, go. So this is a story of, of, a, of a radical sifting of a whole community. And in the context of this, it's in this story, in this moment, that Jesus has to say to them, take this bread, take this wine. He offers them himself. He he. he He sets this up through a meal that he institutes, the bread, the wine, communion. He sets up through this this ritual meal, which he once observed amongst his people from this point onwards. He, He communicates something which cuts utterly, cuts off like gangrene, cuts out this tendency, this bad leaven that we have amongst us. Because right at the heart of what he wants us to know, what he wants us to see, what he wants us to celebrate with the bread, with the wine, is the fact that we come to him to feed, to receive, to eat, to feed upon him. Not ultimately to offer ourselves, not ultimately to demonstrate ourselves, to prove ourselves. Ultimately, we can't. Ultimately, we fail when we try to. Ultimately, we're fools to attempt it. Ultimately, we come as hungry. We come as desperate. We come as like these men, needing to be fed. Jesus comes offering himself. And you, you see the way he does it. It's actually... It's too much that we could for us to possibly give time to. It would genuinely take weeks of teaching to get into the lovely, beautiful riches of this. And I urge you to study your Bible, investigate what's going on here, the illusions and the threads that you can put on. But but look, look even just as a slight example at Jeremiah in the Old Testament, the way that Jeremiah speaks about this new covenant that Jesus came. To begin, hundreds of years later than Jeremiah, but Jeremiah saw it as a prophet in ancient times. He said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And he describes it, but later on, this is Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 33 now. I will put my law within them 
I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And then later in chapter 32 of the same prophet, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. The problem has always been the heart. The problem with Israel, with Judah, had always been the heart. The problem for you, the problem for me, right? Surely stories like this one of the, the night before his execution are, are ample evidence for us to reflect honestly, soberly on ourselves and consider, really, would I be any different than these 12? Would I have performed better? Would I have won the match? We surely got to face the reality of our desperate need. Each one, we've got to see, of course, <laughs> it speaks of me if it speaks of anybody. Because the problem hasn't been occasional days where I, I'm fairly impressed with my outward performance. Days when I think, yeah, I actually did quite well today. Ultimately, the heart, the heart fails me. My, my desires, my longings, my yearnings, and, and actually that steers me so often away from serving him faithfully and fulfilling his commands. Jeremiah says, God's plan is to change the heart. God's desire is to do it through the forgiveness of sins. Jesus, by showing grace, mercy and forgiveness, is able to transform the heart, to transform us inwardly. Inwardly! This is the only hope. He's making a new loaf, new bread, new leaven. It's, it's no good, the old flesh. We need a new heart. We, we need something transformed within us. Jesus is, is perhaps even thinking of, of, of verses like this in the Psalms where, where uh, David talks, but this is, this is a, it seems relevant to what's happening on the, the Last Supper. When evil dayers assail me to eat up my flesh, when adversaries and f my adversaries and foes is they who stumble and fall. When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh. The idea of being devoured, being eaten. It, it literally in the Bible, it's, it suggests somebody taking advantage of your death. And Jesus here is not having us assail him and overcome him in a fight so that we can you know, cannibalize him. Jesus is literally offering himself. He's saying the advantage you need, I give myself, I'm going to be torn I'm going to give myself for you this whole arrangement is a gift this whole arrangement is his great mercy his kindness it utterly undermines and subverts our self-confidence it turns it radically on its head because Jesus is saying I am building a new community that starts it starts each one of us with our sense of total Abject failure before him. It starts there. If you think that sounds negative, I'm afraid you just need to face the fact the Bible is more negative than you want it to be then. If you say, I don't like that, that's too negative, then humble yourself 
and allow the Bible to speak honestly. You have no idea how positive <laughs> things can be when you're prepared to face the negative, when you're prepared to see the reality of, of, of how short you fall, how desperately you need grace each day, each day. And it really is grace that we have each day. I love the fact that this happens at the Passover for several reasons. The Passover lamb, the blood that was shed, it's what we call a propitiation. Propitiation is one of those big scary words that drops, uh, comes through in one or two Bible translations that we have today. It really simply means a sacrifice that turns away wrath, that turns away anger, removes anger, sends it away. And of course, that's precisely what happens at the Passover. The sacrifice, the blood, seen by the angel of death, it passes over, moves away, turns away. It's propitiation. When we celebrate with bread, with wine, when we take these elements, we're reminded of the propitiation, the final dealing with the wrath of God that's provided through Jesus, through his death on the cross, through his blood, this, 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 this blood turns away all that's held against us, all the, the, the record against you, all that's been done or not done, all the things you've said or thought that you shouldn't, all the things you should have said, should have thought, but didn't, all the record that, that could be piled against you and all the wrath and anger and justice that you deserve because of that. Jesus' blood speaks for you. Jesus' blood is your advocate. Jesus' blood <laughs> is enough. There was a Chinese uh, Bible teacher called Watchman Nee who, who made the point so well that when the angel came, he was only looking for the blood on the doorpost. He wasn't looking at the people inside the house. Very often our concern is, am I righteous enough? How have I done? Am I good enough? I've got to stand before God. Is, am I pure Am I holy? How have I done? Am I, am I living the way I should? Maybe these are questions we should ask from time to time, but if our concern becomes this pathological fear that, that, we, that we kind of, we, we've got to somehow be prepared to face his wrath through our own efforts, our own achievements, we're completely missing the point because the angel won't be looking on the night of the Passover at the inhabitants of the house, the angel came looking at the blood on the door. If the blood of Jesus is over your life, you're free from wrath. Don't go looking at yourself. Just be concerned about the doorpost. Just be concerned about the blood. Is the blood there? Is the blood over your life? Is the blood of Jesus over your life? Celebrate and rejoice if it is. Be secure. And I love the fact that this gives such security to us. This is what the Lord's table is so good for. We have a tangible moment each week to cross that off, as it were, to come to the table again as a reminder of something objective. This isn't about how you feel. It's about bread and wine. It's about the, the, the physical reality. Jesus died, was crucified, was torn, was killed. His blood was shed. It was done. It was done. Come to the table. Enjoy the objectivity of it. Enjoy the, the finishedness of it, the certainty of it. And live in the confidence of that. I've often encouraged people who struggle introspectively with their position before God. People who 
for perhaps good reasons, for godly reasons, have a humble attitude. And yet it causes them to get into dark areas of doubt. Am I saved? Do, am I really a believer? Does he really love me? Am I really chosen? Am I, am, I, am I really a Christian? Some of you perhaps struggle with that and you don't want to tell anybody. It's such an embarrassing thing even to talk about. You, you, you feel you, you get beaten up in a church like ours for sounding introspective because we all seem so happy all the time. You don't want to confess the sorrows that you go through wondering about, well, well, my heart doesn't seem happy. I don't, I, don't, I don't love God as much as she does. or They seem to really love God. I don't really love God. There's something wrong with me. My emotions aren't right. And you struggle because you're constantly taking your emotional pulse and you're worried about your feelings and you're being led along by a sense of whether you feel that you love God enough. Do I feel happy? And we can, without meaning to, nurture that foolish concept amongst us as a church. We can allow lots of believers in our churches because we heighten the sense of emotion with, with music and excitement and, and we, 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 without meaning to, can train children of God into a place of, of immature overemphasis on their emotional stability as a means of st stability before God. And the two things are quite different. And I've often said to people who come to me in that place of introspection, I don't really know, I don't feel, I don't, I'd say, come to the table. Let's take bread and wine. Let's stop talking about how you feel. Let's stop talking about whether you feel like he loves you. Let's eat some bread. Let's drink some wine. Let's be sure of it. Because it was done. It happened. <laughs> and it happens in a sense every week. We can come back to the table. We can come back to this secure, objective reality. Whatever I feel like, the blood has been shed. What a glorious propitiation. And because of that, sustaining grace is available. It's not just propitiation, it's sustenance. This is what I feed on. Through my week, through my day, I have a, a place to come back to, a, a banquet, as it were, to come back to. I'm sustained, I'm fed on the certainty of Christ for me, who loved me and gave himself for me, as the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 2. He gave himself. I, I can live off that. I can live. Not, no longer I, but Christ in me. The life I live now, I live by the faith of Jesus Christ, who loved me and gave himself for me. God offers you security and objectivity today and an objectivity that sustains you and takes you above your emotional roller coaster of the Christian life, your feelings. God forbid that Christians in Emmanuel should, should be allowing their hearts and minds to be spoiled by emotionalism. God help us to be sustained by a stable feeding on the finished work of Jesus. And then finally, fellowship. We receive fellowship at the table. He invites us to his table. Take, eat. This is a banqueting table. Receive from him. Receive the bread and the wine as a gift. You come and you're welcome. Whether you're a Christian or not, today become a Christian and you can come to the table and receive this gift given for you in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the, the kindness of what he's done for us. We thank you so much that this whole covenant is based on the gift of grace. Help us to live in the good of that. In Jesus' name, amen.